What was it like to be tutored by the Rembrandt of Scandinavia back in the 1980s? To be a part of the Nerdrum School, as the term came into being? To witness Art Nerdrum's transformation from a social realist to a master of archetypical imagery? Joining me tonight is a man who lived through the fierce criticism of the Romantic Realist movement in Norway. He is a man who was rejected from the Art Academy in Norway, only later to find himself teach at the same institution. Per Lundgren, welcome to the Cave of Apelles. Thank you very much. Now, uh, we have uh, quite a bit to go through tonight. Yes. And um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this small minority in Norwegian painting history of outsiders. Why are they so appealing and especially to young painters? Mm. Um, and how is it that a classical figurative revival could happen in Norway of all places? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll be looking at the critical reception of Ad Nerdrum and the other figurative painters yourself included. Um, and of course we will look at the controversies surrounding his appointment as a professor at the Art Academy yes. in, in Oslo. Um, but first, we have one of your landscapes here. Yes. And I remember uh, when I was a student and I got to know you, uh, seeing the landscapes that you made in these different uh, exhibitions, all thoroughly, thoroughly well composed uh, and of a very high level. Uh, do you only do landscape painting or do you other, do other themes as well? Uh, I think I started as a painter, yeah, a landscape painter, outdoors actually. Mm. It was very fascinating, the surroundings of my countryside house. My, old, my parents uh, had a hut or a small countryside house and I was so very much engaged about the sea, uh, the mountains, the, yeah, the forest around it. And I think it was just an impulse I got from very early childhood. Mm -hmm. I did. Later on, it was felt me very natural to to continue that kind of uh, work. So I, I started seriously to paint some landscapes when I was a late teenager. Yes. Really? Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. And then we have mm. Mr. Lars Hartevig. Yes. Yes. It strikes me that. Uh, uh, that you maybe have been at least equally as influenced by him as by Ad Nerdrum. Yeah. Is that... No, it, it go into each other in many ways. Mm. I, I didn't knew anything about Lars Hertevik before, uh, before I came to Oslo in 1980. I mean, it was a name. I, didn't, I haven't seen his picture in real, but when I saw it first time, it was some familiar with the tone in it. There was some silver tone, it was some softness, it was some dreamy scenes that I could find in my own, yeah, very early things. Mm -hmm. So it was very, it was not very strategic way of my admiring of him, but it was just, I was very curious, what's this? And then uh, it came to me that he was also a very tragic person mm. in many, many ways. So, but his, his, uh, his life is very well described in books, but um, 
Uh, he was the best pupil we had at that time of Lars Gude. Uh, not Lars Gude, it was um, Anne, yeah. Gude, we call him the God. <laughs> um, he lived in, uh, he was a professionalist in, in Düsseldorf in Germany. And uh, he said later on that uh, this man, Lars Hertevik, was the best pupil he ever had. Uh, when it come, came to the talent he had mm. from nature. Uh, Lars Hertevik is born in the western part of Norway, 1830s. No, 1830. And uh, he lived on for to 1902, yes. Uh, he's very tragic. His life is very tragic in many ways, but mostly he was uh, placed in uh, in an institution for uh, problems with his behavior, problem with his uh, was uh, mental health, yeah, yeah. and so on. Yeah, I think he spent a year, a little bit more than one year, in Christiania at that time. Mm. There's a story from his uh, his stay at that uh, mental hospital, which is quite. Uh, illustrative of the problem with being slightly too intelligent. Mm. I mean, this is, was a man who taught himself how to read mm. when he was five years old. Mm. Um, and uh, he is there as uh, you know, mentally sick yeah. and they are um, let out to do meaningful work. So they have to d dig holes and plant trees. Yeah, you're right. And he, and he starts talking about mm. how well you could put all those patients upside down yes. and plant them in the ground. Mm. and. The, the the wardens then tell this story as you know some this shows that he's not very yeah. uh, <laughs> he confirmed his illness by speaking like that <laughs> because he was too intelligent yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> this was sarcasm right no and i also had some ideas about i mean he was very much what to say uh, engaged uh, how is the weather today i mean he was the west he was from the western part of norway mm. the people out, out there they are just Consider that what kind of weather is today? Hmm. Is it going to be nasty? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be windy? He was very, very much uh, interested in the weather hmm. and the clouds. Hmm. And n not all people are that interested in see obviously things like that. Right. So but, he, he was he, too interested in it. Yeah, he was more than interesting. He he wanted to 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 make art of it. And he did, of course. He's the most cloudy. He was the most atmospheric uh, painter we ever had in, in, in from that period. I mean, right. And it, it strikes me because uh, when you look at his his uh, images, yes, his uh, paintings, uh, I remember hearing from uh, from different American students of of uh, uh that they. Either that they've seen the cloud formation in Nerdrum's paintings, yes. that are of course very very influenced by by Hartwig, uh, but uh, but also when they've seen Hartwig, and they think <coughs> they, they they told me that you know clouds do not look like that, yeah. and then they come mm. and they see that the clouds do actually yes. look like that, mm. and it it strikes me also as a, as a difference between mm. Hartwig and the general landscapes you know, sort of typical national romantic mm. uh, at mm. the time mm. that of course in the national rom romanticism you see the clouds and all the things are there but but uh, he has seen it so much mm. more thorough mm. so that you think that he hasn't studied mm. clouds because you you have the concept of the national romantic clouds in your head you're right and when someone comes and really looks at it people mm. say well that's not a cloud <laughs> no 
It's more like a head. It's more like an animal. It's, yes, it reminds me of something else. Uh, yes, I heard something like that. Mm. What I've been told that if you are very isolated, there is two problems, at least two problems being isolated. One of them is going to your work. If you are too much isolated, you can uh, make a mannerism out of your work mm. because you have no critics from outside. Right. Right. Uh, the second problem is that if you can't concentrate, concentrate enough in your study, you will go choose something else all the time. Mm. And the third one was to study it through academia. And you had a lot of let's say, weather reports from the academia. Perfectly. Uh, right. You can see when it was snowing. You could see when it was cold. You can see the direction of the clouds and so on. So I think uh, the beautiful things from Hartwig is that he has created in his own mannerism. A mannerism in a positive way. Mm -hmm. um, he had plenty of time. Uh, he could uh, stay with the problems for a long time. Uh, but in the same time, at the same time, he had also some problems transforming things from paper to canvases. Mm. You can see easily that if you had, had a lot of sketches, mm. uh, beautiful drawings and so on. But to lift it over to, 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 to oil painting and so on, he had some problems with that. But in the end, he had a small production. He had, could concentrate for years with a motive. And that's what we are looking into. And you know, there's one thing I, I'm, I'm thinking about when it comes to, of course, this is the modern art way of thinking that, oh, you shouldn't follow a uh, uh, recipe. Yeah. But the problem is not that, if you, that you follow a recipe, but that you don't use the recipe as a basis to study nature. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that is what separates Hartwig from the others, that he used that mm. the recipe that he learned. Mm but added empirical study. Yeah, right. A great deal of his production is just something he tries out. He had a lack of uh, supplies, I mean equipment and so on. Uh, brushes, for instance, he made them, them, them himself. Um, he, he wanted to explore, explore the medium mm. in his way. Mm. And um, once again, I think uh, have been told by the professor, pro professor in, in, in Düsseldorf that he was talentful. I think that gave him a kind of burst uh, through his problems. I think he could easily go back and paint a, a yeah. more traditional painting of uh, uh, a sea, uh, cloudy morning, cloudy evening and so on. But the mysterious things he wanted to uh, to serve us, to give us. That was what we are looking for, into when we see his painting today. Yeah. It's not like this, it's not like this, it's something very separate but close to, and it's Hartwig. Uh, but in the end, uh, the, mo the most mystery about this man uh, is painting, of course, but also his, uh, his, uh, his not, there is, don't exist any kind of photo of this man. There is mm. no exact uh, words or, or things that are written from his pen. Mm. It's, it's lying there in the fog. Right. Very much. And uh, it was 
said or I think I read it somewhere that when he was suffering from uh, from cancer in his uh, stomach uh, they came to to take a photo of him uh, but at this two days before they had cut off his uh, beer and he was so what to say so negative and so this uh, he was not happy about it <laughs> so he just turned him turned around and showed them his back mm. and there was no photo taken of him so the only thing we have left of his story or his uh, point of view if you wanted to call it that is the painting uh, his tries his uh, his his what to say his fantasy and he dies 72 years old not finished the same with Kittleson they were not finished mm. their project could go on for at least 50 years more right but they died too early and the, their project took place for a short while and uh, the story is too short yes their story and when it comes to Hartwig one thing that that strikes me when you see how he faced um, the situation that he ended up with I mean after his breakdown or whatever happened in, in Dusseldorf he was what 25 yes he comes to to the mental hospital and afterwards he was he's socially completely eradicated yes yeah. and that's when he makes his real masterpieces yes I mean, I do believe it's uh, the old pine trees that Nerdermas referred to as the mm. Mona Lisa of, of painting. Mm. So it's not just a question of, you know, in a Norwegian context, uh, you know, fairly good work. It is on a world historical level, mm. solid work and among the best Absolutely. within landscape painting. Mm. Absolutely. He had it. He had everything you ask for when you come to this uh, skill. Mm. I think he picked up easily what's, what went on in Düsseldorf. Mm. I think it took the essence there. Mm. You can find fragments here today and I mean you can finally find fragments of his landscapes here and there but you, can, you can't find any exact place where he painted something from mm. even mm. I mean so he, he condenses these images and makes into because I remember yes. going to uh, you know, you have the famous Borg Island yes, yes. that he, he painted. And when you come and see it, it <laughs> looks completely different. I mean, he, he's cut off like half the, half the mountain. <laughs> oh, it's a very big disappointment because you are expecting, uh, yeah, so, something so, extraordinary there, yeah, and yeah. it's uh, just uh, a spot yeah. in landscape. So he's he he is editing and um, you know, working as a as a director and as a uh, what do you call it when you do the scenery in a theater mm. all of this designing. position designing the mm. whole stage mm, 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 when mm, it mm. creates these yeah. uh, these stories and it's so amazing. I mean, I always think about that. I mean, you, you can always be a bit sort of. Uh, uh, down about you know this, this difficulties with selling and these things, but then when you think about Hertevig, mm. things get into perspective. Yes, this is a man who is completely eradicated socially mm. in a town no one's ever heard of in a country where no no one ever, ever has ever been, mm. and he makes the Mona Lisa of landscape painting in that situation. Yes. That is an amazing feat, and if you if you if you are ever depressed about not having a big enough studio, mm, mm. 
Mm-mm. Imagine the prospect of 25 going up and then suddenly ending up living in a little attic room with your father and pa- painting there. It's five meters to two. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's an unbelievable story about him and his father living there. Yeah. Uh, they were, uh, they, they had a kind of touch with this Quaker movement. Yeah, they were Quakers, yes, yes. right. And a lot of people try to understand what's the meaning of the Quaker and uh, could uh, Lars Hertevik have been in touch with some ideas uh, connected to the Quaker and so on. Uh, a lot of people have tried to figure out if he was the inner light painter in many ways. So Because they were believing the Quaker uh, movement they were believing or were told that the inner light was so much, uh, very much uh, important for every human being. Uh-huh. Because if you have the inner light in yourself, you can prevent the darkness to come into your, uh, uh, into your, your soul. Yeah, your soul. Yes, the devil is in the darkness and so on. I uh-huh. don't think they were so in close contact with the Quaker uh, movement, but I've, after all, I have been told that the Quakers was uh, isolated. Uh, but also a very strong movement uh, uh, in Lars Hertwig's uh, surroundings. Right. Yes. Right. One uh, last thing about him that, that strikes me. Uh, you're speaking of isolation. Yes. And how do you survive? Now, I, I guess it's not for everyone, but, <laughs> but the, uh, there's one story of, of him being, um, what's the English phrase? When you, you there was no social security at the time, yes, no, no. so you were sent to farms and you could work a little bit and you got food and, and, and a place to live. And <clears throat> he's out painting, and they're coming to fetch him to work, yes. to do some logging or something like. That. Yes, yes. And it's then kind of duty work. Then. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, you you pay for your, your food, or work for your food. Mm. Um, and apparently, someone must have been with him because uh, his uh, his uh, he sees them approaching, and then he says, oh, "We'll have some fun now." And when they go, come closer, he says, oh, can you see my father? He's hanging there in the, in the forest there. Mm. And then they understand that, okay, he's, uh, he's not uh, present today. So they just left him. And when they walk away, he just sort of, you know, laughs and continues painting. Absolutely. I heard about that yeah. story too. Yeah. I think it was told by his sister that was ah. interviewed by a um, biography, Asla Blit. Yeah. Asla Blit. Uh, she interviewed uh, his sister, mm. and stories like that mm. could be true. Yeah. If you compare to, I mean, it has been always a joke that we have to suffer to be an artist and so on, and, and you, you need the suffering to show how life is. Um, there is some fragments in that I can understand. Huh. Uh, but I think uh, the situation for, uh, for Kittelsen and also for Lars Hertwig, uh, you see, Kittelsen, he was very aware of what's happening in Europe. He had trips to Paris. Mm. He had a stay in Munich twice, I think. Mm. He knew a lot of things that was going on in Europe. He wrote about it later on. Compared to this, I mean, he was born in 1857. He knew about kind of... Uh, movements, impressionist, uh, realism, natural uh, socialism. He, he knew about a uh, lot of things that was going on, uh, uh, even wars took place in Europe. 
but he was very untouched by it. Mm. Hartwig, he knew exactly the same. He was born in 1830. He could see a lot of things that happened through his life. I think he was not blind or deaf or, or was not uh, interested in European development and so on. I think he got some ideas that this is not for me. Right. I put all I have to my talent. I wanted to stay here. I'm going to be very local and see how it will go on for me. Today, so, Kittelsen is the most popular <coughs> and most famous artist ever in, 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 in Norway, after Edvard Munch. Mm. And uh, Hertevik is the most, yeah, the great, great landscape painter we ever had in Norway, Scandinavia mm. at all. Mm. So they took a risk, but today you can see the result. When it comes to, to Hartwig, uh, he's so obviously not <coughs> a national romantic, not a naturalist. No. Uh, when you look at uh, the Borg Island, yes, which is an amazing, you know, how mm. it opens up when you really study it. Yes, I remember uh, Al talking about its inverted perspective. Yes, like in the icons, but actually it has two perspectives. You have the foreground. Yes. That goes in the normal sort of Renaissance perspective. Yes. And then you have the Borg Island and the clouds coming out yes. towards you. So one part goes in and so that the, the island comes even stronger yes. at you. Yes. And I was wondering, this is, I have no idea, uh, of course, we know very little about him, but he did some sea journey on a boat working as a, some, you know, some kind of a sailor or so yes. when he went, was sick, uh, yes. after he had been sick. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and apparently they stopped the, in London, okay. but they were in England. Okay. Do you think he might have seen something by Turner or, or uh, Leonardo even? Because this idea mm. of inverting the perspective, mm -hmm. where does it come from? Because it's emphatically not mm. Norwegian, not no. national romantic, not naturalist. No. So how you, did it... Yeah. Do you have any idea? I mean, was it... Mm. You know, I mean, of course, two people can have the same idea at different places without knowing about each other but mm. I think this wealthy family called Kjellan mm. I think I could yeah show him some illustrations from yeah the great masters of in Europe I mm. think mm. yeah I think that's possible yeah of course you had a big tradition of, of uh, yes, they could, prints and yes uh, they yeah. have, I think they had some oh. books uh, some stories about what went on in yeah northern Europe uh, if we could learn something from it, yes. If we could cope with some of those stuff, no. <laughs> I think he took a drop here and the drop mm. there. And I think mostly that he was so isolated that, and as I said earlier, I think he was, had a kind of mannerism that, he, that he, that's the only thing he could trust in, mannerism to stay on these roads. And um, Turner, I think he also went into kind of mannerism. Mm. You can easily see it from 10 meters that this is a Turner picture, mm. no doubt. Mm. I think it's uh, a result of isolation at all, mm. uh, that there is a mannerism in it. Mm. But uh, if he had seen the original painting of Turner, I don't think so.
I don't think so. Mm. No. no. I, I I'd be no, very surprised. If I you have know. no idea, but uh, it was just an intri intri yes, intriguing yeah, yeah, yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, yes. um, but then, of course, there's, there is all, also uh, Edvard Munch, you, you mentioned. Yes. And, uh, and he is th that's, the, that's the strange thing about uh, the Norwegian tradition that you have. Well, I'm not so sure about Kittelsen, but at least Munch and Hartwig, together with Odd Nordrum, yeah. are the the only really old master painters mm. in Norwegian tradition. I mean, you have, uh, well, not bother the viewers with too many Norwegian names, but you have these 1850s, 60s painters that mm. learn the academic style, which is, you know, an echo of Caravaggio, you could say. Yes. But but then that sort of just stops in the in the late 19th century. Mm. Uh, but these, especially uh, Hartwig and Munch uh, in, uh, in the 19th, 20th century, have that mm. drama, have that and they have that pathos. Mm, they have. I think uh, if Kittelsen had achieved more free time for himself, I think he could uh, create more dramatic stuff than oh. he did. Uh, I think he, in many ways, was... Uh, he came into also a kind of mood uh, because of his, his illness, mm. that he wanted something the very opposite of drama. Mm -hmm. uh, silence, mm -hmm. uh, softness, uh, right. uh, calmness, right. uh, calms in no waves. Uh, I think he had so much pain in his body and his, uh, he was a very sensitive man. So I think he went more and more back to this calm, uh, contemplative uh, motives. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a story that uh, Edvard Munch, a wealthy man, wealthy artist, very well known, came to Bergen, Bergen and saw one of uh, Kittelsen's work. Uh, this white horse came in, coming up during the nighttime, right. full stretch, and he admired it. He said so. He admired that piece. And if he had bought it, it would be a sensational uh, act from him. Yeah. That Kittelsen could live for many years. Mm. He didn't. Instead, uh, uh, the collection of Meyer in Bergen bought it, and but the story is there. Yeah, yeah. He admired it strongly. Mm -hmm. He said so, but he couldn't dare to buy it. Right. And I leave it there. Okay, so we're sort of coming back to where we started. Uh, the or approaching sort of the 1960s uh, again. And <clears throat> I think Munch, the, in that sense, can sort of be a work as a nice segue into, into that. Uh, because it's, it's so strange that a man who is so talented, so cultivated, still falls uh, in the face of fashion. Mm. And, and he sees the expressionists and he, he thinks he's gotten old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a very strange, strange situation. So, and he is so such a famous person that he. Do you think it's fair to say that he shows that the the demise of the classical tradition within painting in Norway? Yes, it was a, a kind of um, uh, just before Kittelsen dies in 1914. Uh, it was a kind of the a kind of end of an era. Uh, it was a 
story that went on. What's going? What's uh, what are Norway, the academical part of Norway, going to choose? The German narrow school or the French? What to say? More loudly, more style. Mm. And they, it was very close, but they went for the for the the French mannerism, modernism mm. at that time. Mm. Uh, it was one or two professors that could uh, tiny French, and then they were given the lead role in the academia in 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 Norway, because of this they could speak French and they understood what went on in Paris, and they were dominating the whole picture, uh, the scene. I mean, mm. in in Oslo at that time. So when when Odnardrum, born in forty four, came into this French style, the French province modernism uh, everywhere in, 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 in Oslo. I think it was quite a shock. Yeah. That was the biggest contrast uh, they ever seen. I mean, he was asking for something completely else. They were serving vegetable, vegetables, but he preferred meat. <laughs> And uh, you see, then you have to go and to another restaurant, <laughs> or you you have to choose your menu here, uh, or or you have to uh, yeah eat what we have in this restaurant, and that's only French fries. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and uh, the conflict, I think, it was from the very moment right. he will, it, he went to the academy at that time, and he was frustrated, and I also I also think that. Uh, the, the teacher were very frustrated too, but I, because I couldn't give him what he asked for. So walk us through that, because then we, uh, I wanted to talk about your, um, your time with Nerdrum in mm. with the 80s and th the changes that, that happens with his production there. Yes. But uh, we're sort of going uh, chronologically here. So let's, let's yes. stick with the 60s and go yes. and move upwards. Uh, what was the reception of, of uh, Nerdrum? Uh, yes, it has been told. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but it was told that it was a conflict uh, between his style, his personality, uh, the time, the institution, the criticism that went on in the newspaper. It was a conflict everywhere. Mm. At the same time, it was declared that conflict it was perfect for the evolution of art. <laughs> so he <laughs> took it for, he took it directly on that word and said, okay, do you want a mess or you do you want a, <laughs> a fight or do you want, what do you want? We don't want you, he was yeah. told. So he was thrown out from the academy in 1962 or three, I think, at that time. And uh, that was very good. Yeah. Yes, and also yeah. for the institution itself. <laughs> uh, so it was a happy. Divorce. Somebody here must admit that it was good for every part of the <laughs> conflict. <laughs> yes, but it it was a yeah. You already mentioned it. It was a, a movement. Uh, it was a not a lot, but it was yeah. some people that found each other uh, from the same time. They call it uh, the realism and the romantic style movement. And they got together and they achieved to, to, to satisfy public. Yeah. And this is, this is part of 
the reason why uh, we agreed to talk a bit about Hertwig because according to Nordum, the, the Hertwig exhibition of 62 could be was quite important yes. when it came to sort of kick-starting or mm. at least giving an impetus to a classical figurative revival mm -hmm. yes in Norway yes at, at that time I think that the, the landscape painters it was a lot of them too not a lot of them but they were studying Hertwig very much because of this uh, what is it re uh, what is it, re-established Hertwig, mm. that kind of uh, exhibition. Um, the story about Hertwig himself was very fascinating, uh, especially for young people. So there was an appeal in the Yes, I think or... to be suffering and yeah. to be a genius and all that stuff, it belongs together. <laughs> and um, I think uh, Odd picked up a lot. What it picked up, I don't know, from the 60s, but later on, yeah. uh, 80s and 90s, he was so engaged in his uh, stuff. Yeah. I think he saw more clearer and without this kind of uh, uh, affection of his bad life and so on, I think he saw uh, a kind of mannerism oh. that was very positive. Because I'm not speaking about mannerism as a pos positive thing, right, right. not uh, uh, something uh, that went on and went on and then repeating itself. I'm speaking about mannerism so as a kind of concentration yeah. a con uh, and, and uh, a very positive thing. And you've talked about earlier, and that, that was uh, uh, quite a surprise for me, that Hartwig was a formal influence, or could be seen as a formal influence on uh, Nerdum in the way how he tightens up his work, especially in the 80s and 80s and yes, 90s. you're right. Absolutely. After the because 70s... Because Hertwig is very uh, you know, sculptural, exact. very clear, without being drawn. No, you're right, you're yeah. right. You have absolutely some, some paintings that shows you right. Mm. Uh, he started to, to sharpen every shape. He started to, to make it clear in every sense of the word. This is this, this is this, and this is this, and all those things, they belong to one piece, mm. like that. So to be able to, to uh, uh, give each form its individuality yeah, without exactly. it popping out mm. of the, 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 uh, the exactly. context. Right. right. Uh -huh. And uh, later on, as Ol always did, he was so engaged, and then he dropped it. Right. Always. And he said... Fell in love, let's come out of it. Yeah. See what it is from a distance, and perhaps you go back to it. And this is very strange because you wouldn't immediately uh, think, oh, they're, oh, Hartwig. Yeah, no. It, it, it's there, they are quite far apart. I yes, mean, they it's, are. The, it's not, not given that a uh, young painter trying to emulate uh, Caravaggio. Especially in, the, in the, especially in the well, sixties, seventies, mm. uh, should find something in Hartwig. No, no. He was very hard, uh, insisting that this is, has big values for all of us, but mostly for me. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just following and see, yeah, how can we use this? How yeah. can we use it? But as I said earlier, I, I, th I think I, I understood his uh, compassion uh, to his work, uh, to Hartwig's work, but. Also, his 
uh, what I say, a talent for seeing uh, gold fragments here and there in history. Right. Uh, could you tell us about how it was <clears throat> coming to the studio? Uh, and the reason why I'm asking is that, that it seems to me to be a tendency uh, among perhaps too many figurative painters to talk about uh, how you should just paint. Don't mm. think, just paint. Mm, mm -hmm. And if it's one thing I uh, think about when it comes to, to uh, Odnerum's studio, it is the, the emphasis on being a cultivated person. Mm. What kind of literature were you introduced, or, or was read at the at, at the studio? Did you discuss it? You see, what? I see, I understand, I understand, understand. You see, we were quite young at that time, uh, yeah. but we had then kind of, some of us had the kind of education. <laughs> <laughs> All has hardly any kind of edu education, but to me, it sounds like he has read everything. Hmm. Uh, Shakespeare, yes, the great. National themes, Ibsen, Kjellan, he knew about everything. So, Hamsun, of course, uh, the Scandinavian uh, period, uh, he could easily recitate whatever it was. And it was, I mean, he was 15 years older than us, but he was very patient. Mm. So, we hardly, he hardly get, uh, gave us any kind of uh, what to say, ideas about read this Dostoevsky, the Russian, Gogol, uh, whatever it is. He just mentioned them. Hmm. He took fragments from Hamsun and said, look at what's going on here. Listen to this voice. Mm -hmm. So it was more than up, up to us to say, okay, I pick up that book. Right. I will pick up that. Of course, next time I will try to have a kind of conversation about this book. But that was the way. And uh, besides books, it was music, it was, uh, uh, what to say, we took trips to Italy, Holland, Sweden. So being under the, in the Nerdrum school, that means it was not a school in the ordinary way. Uh, it was a very free, uh, 24 hours a day school, uh, it was. Uh, and. Um, he took us to many, what to say, situations that we normally wouldn't join. Mm. We met people on a certain level that he said, I, I know them, they're not my friends, but I know them. Speak with them. People from, from, from the film industry, uh, people from, uh, from theater. Uh, yes, they all came to us through Odd. Mm. That was the Nedrim school. Mm. He used his position. I have no position, he said. Can't be true. People came to his life and they came also to us. So they came to school. <laughs> Our school. Right. And there was one specific uh, review where the Nedrim school uh, was, uh, was coined. Right. Was, uh, came into being. Oh, yeah. You see, it's... Yes, why not? You say Nedrim school. Oh, it's very touchy to have a school. I mean, yes, why not? You heard about the London school. Mm. That was very positive. Mm. It was a sensation. We heard about the uh, so-called French school from the 
very start of the 19th century, Odd said clearly, I have no students at my, stu my school. I have assistants. Mm -hmm. That's something else. Yeah. And he was very, very precise on that. I have no students. I have only assistants. So he took us to the television and declared, this is Nadim School. Uh, we presented, presented uh, our, ourselves uh, as a kind of mixture between students and uh, assistants. And uh, later on, it was presented as in 1986 as the School uh, uh, exhibition. And uh, the critics said, uh, you know for sure, every school is a boring one. <laughs> but when they opened the so-called London School exhibition at Astor Fernimese, they were so excited. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're it, just laughing about the whole situation. It uh -huh. was a kind of mob. That's all. Right. That stood for this criticism. And uh, in the end, what's the academy? That's a real school. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's, that, a that's a real school. I mean, and they were all trying to belong to the all the values that this school could give them. Yeah. There was a struggle to convince themselves that I am a part of this academy. That's that's a school. That's a school. This is a good uh, reminder of of uh, uh, what we were going to talk about before we came to the eighties. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, the the reception. Of Adnerin's work, I mean, I, I, I've uh, written about this myself. Uh, uh, some of these adjectives that were used from the very beginning. Yes. And um, I, I went through it quite quickly just before we met, and uh, I don't know how much time we shall use on this, but <laughs> uh, you can imagine being criticized uh, throughout the years with the following: uh, being theatrical, sentimental. Uh, melodramatic, pathetic, monumental, eternal, banal, tragic, seducive, museum-like, carnival, uh, salon-like, uh, old masterly, a virtuoso technique, schematic, mechanical, basing yourself on effects, uh, making pastiche and imitations, etc., etc., etc. Do you have something to add <laughs> to that? <laughs> I can just confirm that those nasty words is some of them are true <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's very attracting for young people yeah yes that many adjectives yeah yeah young people they want adjectives all yeah. the time uh, <laughs> so come on with them <laughs> so i think odd was he's hardly read criticism mm. no the critics was just some lunatics he he, he dropped it easily I saw it when he picked up a, a newspaper after an exhibition opening. He'd just look at the, yeah, the photo. Yeah, but the photo was okay of the picture. That's good. <laughs> and there was a small text here and there. Oh, okay, drop it. <coughs> he didn't read it. Mm. No, he was told what's in it mm. uh, by others, but he hardly read it. Right. And well, I, I think this is... This is uh, uh, given what you're, you're saying there, uh, this is also perhaps something then to, to emulate, to not 
go into what the critics say and be mm. totally overwhelmed by it because you will be able to work. That's, I mean, if you have a dog yelling at you, yeah. you don't stop there and try to, what do you want, dog? I can't understand <laughs> you. It's not me. It's something, I'm, I'm kind. You don't speak with a, a dog right. yelling at you. Uh -huh. You just leave so, it. So you just leave it. I mean, uh, he knew for sure that those kind of adjectives, they couldn't uh, put him down. Yeah. No, it couldn't put his work down. Right. He would just stay on those roads, paint, hardworking. And then in the end, they, the criticism will not be quiet, but people will change, perhaps <coughs> change their point of view later on. So this, his project is more than one man's lifetime. It's, it's going to be the future for many, many critics after this. Mm. And uh, that's the whole project. It's saved in many ways in that way. You never know what's coming up. Uh, the criticism is a delirium for a short period. Mm. And, and this, I guess, uh, when you look at the what he did in the 70s, in the so-called social realist uh, time. For example, this painting called The Meeting. Yeah. They're in sort of 70s clothing, but the eyes of that woman mm. is not 70s. No, no. And the passion of Andreas Bader is not 70s. No. And I guess that's one huge benefit from thinking on a much grander perspective. Yes, no that you are not, for example, in this specific case, when you're talking about criticism, mm. you are not weighed down, or at least not destroyed by it, mm -hmm. because you have a greater view of, of the Absol point of your work. The project is right. it's absolutely bigger than just for a decade. Right. Yeah, it will continue. Right. Uh, yes, yeah. So I, I think I, a lot of painters would really take that to heart and be really mm. affected by it. Mm. I mean, yes, normally. It, I mean, it, uh, to the detriment of their work. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think especially young people are very fragile yeah. when they come to criticism. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's uh, hush people yeah. living from being a critic. They have no responsibility. I've read a lot of it. And it's so, uh, what do you say? It's so dominated. The criticism is so dominated by the common sense from its time. Yeah, com consensus of yeah, consensus. Yeah, 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 it's a common sense also by, yeah. among critics. Yeah. They have their own language, they have their favorites, yeah. uh, they prefer this and that, uh, and suddenly they just are lost hmm. because the painting is still there. I mean, odds, yeah, you mentioned um, the meeting, the painting, the hmm. meeting. It has fragments from many periods many periods, strange periods, uh, the clothes, uh, the touch of the skin, uh, their eyes, you mentioned it. It's free from time criticism. Can't yeah. use local time to, to, right. to make a critic even of when that. When, even when it was a social uh, realist, yes, so-called. Yes. So-called, yeah. so-called, yeah. so-called, so-called. So uh, he went on with a big drawing uh, because at that time it was this horrible conflict in the Middle East about Israel and Palestinian. And he saw a, a photo or something 
It was lined up for 100 meters with prisoners, Palestinian, all of them. Uh, with, uh, they had something that could prevent them to see. They would cover their eyes with a cloth mm. and they were bounded on their uh, back. Their hands were back on, yeah, on their back. Yeah. And he saw a beautiful uh, scenery there that he started to draw uh, prisoners. And that the drawing should be uh, yeah, a so-called study for the huge canvas. So we went down to the, the Muslim society in Oslo and picked up some models, could pose for, for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, as usual, he wanted to not become friend of them, but he, he was listening to them. And he stopped his the work with it, uh, the big canvas, and said that, uh, no, I can't do this. I think he made a kind of statement for himself that this was not his future to be a political commentary right. through painting. He had been through that with a huge canvas called the Vietnamese... Uh, the refugees at sea. Yeah, the refugees yeah, at right. sea. And he also ad- he admitted that he couldn't say for himself or for the, for everybody else of us that he took favor of them. Mm. He was very directly and said that perhaps a lot of those people I'm trying to, to make heroes of, perhaps they are bandits, perhaps they are killers, perhaps they are, perhaps they are uh, common terrorists. Mm. And uh, he said that, no, I... No, I, no, I'm trying to get out of this. No, I wanted to find something new. Uh, so now we are back after an exhibition in, in New York, 1982-3. And he came back, started one more time, his last effort to make a social realistic painting. He put a Negro into a, a motive, and na- half naked, and he took he, he became more and more naked and this desperate Negro man, he was suffering from a hit uh, from... In the motif. Yes, uh, absolutely. Right. Very dramatic. Uh-huh. And then he, day by day, he said to himself, no, this is not going to be New York comments. This is going to be on something else. Mm. And he took away everything that he could find in the picture. Uh, the last uh, fragments of uh, the clothes and opened up the landscape and said, ah, let's get out of it. Mm-hmm. If there is problem in your life, get out of it. If there is harassment in your life, go get, get out of it. So you open up the picture, make a beautiful horizon and you can easily see far away that a man was running away from the whole situation. Mm. That could explain his, what is it, uh, his point of view. Uh, you're, you, 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 you have to decide yourself if you're going to suffer of harassment or at least don't be a terrorist yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you have to take action here 
leave the situation, seek the nature, seek the totality. And then, for a sudden, it opened up. It's almost like a recapitulation of of. Uh, I didn't saw it. Then. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was just it, he just leaving the contemporary time. Yeah, he just opened up, take away all the fragments from our lousy time, and put the humans clearly, uh, primitive or not, naked, half naked, put it into the eternity, mm. and see what happens. Um, I have this book here on the Persian landscapes, yes. which was one of the sources. Are there other things that, that uh, influenced him that, in that uh, time? First of all, I, I do think I remember exactly that small book he picked up. Uh -huh. He picked up fragments here and there, spots here and there, and he used it for his own purpose. That means where he could fit in. He never copied a, something from books. No, he took the atmosphere, right. uh, the books was on the floor, lying there and here, and he had a short glimpse on it, and yeah, I can see that, and I use it here, it's like that. He didn't copy anything, no. If he wanted to have a so-called support from a photo, you could never see it directly. You could mm -hmm. never recognize that he took exactly that mm -hmm. fragments. And uh, the project was the motive, the idea, and uh, the surroundings, the landscape and so on, should only, not only, but it should fill out the whole idea. So if he wanted the real loneliness, really loneliness, he went to the moral life. Yeah, it could be uh, Far East, look like, desert areas. Yeah. Yes, if he wanted to be more uh, erupted, more brutal things he went to Iceland to have his landscapes fit in and his uh, so-called um, harmonic uh, uh, paintings for the summertime he went to the coastline of southeast Norway yeah. found them there yes. right. he could choose he could find them everywhere uh, it was a book I gave to Odd in 83 84. He already started on his new style, his new ideas. It was this book was made by the Swedish Swedish author called uh, P. Christian Jersil, Jersil, after the flood. Uh, my uncle gave gave it to me and said that it, I think can you give this book to Odnader? I don't know him, but I think this book will be interesting for him to read. I gave it to Odd, and he was finished with that book uh, after two days, perhaps one night, I don't know. And admit that that was a kind of opening. Mm -hmm. But again, it was nothing to illustrate in that book, right. but it gave it a kind of opening. Uh, to me, it was what just an ugly book about a desperate bunch of people uh, in the Baltic Sea after an atomic catastrophe or whatever. It was just the essence of a world trying to find a kind of harmony, a desperate search of harmony. But it was an impossible thing 
to so, achieve. So they, they sort of ended up in the, what is called a nat, nat, natural state, nature yes. state. or. Yes, I, I, mean, I think that book of Jersil, the Swedish author, I think it gave an opening. And that was, an odd, he was open himself for an opening. <laughs> uh, he was very hush on people that was trying to, to tell him how to paint, what to paint and so on. But this time he said there was something fascinating mm-hmm. in this world. I don't think he read anything else of Yashil, but just yeah. exactly this book yeah. after the flood. It seems like there, there were many sort of, uh, you know, gateways into this new world. Yes. Uh, suddenly he's sitting in, in an airplane mm. on New Year's Eve and he, he, sitting there on New Year's Eve somehow makes him understand that time is completely meaningless, mm-hmm. meaningless because mm. when you're in outer space. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Mm. So I guess that's what happens to you. I mean, I think when we're sitting here, mm. if we suddenly should shoot, you know, five million miles straight up mm. and stand still and someone gives you a push, mm. you start turning mm. and then they ask you to say, well, where's forward and backwards yes, 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 and yes. upside and down yes. and left and right? Mm. It can be anywhere. Yes. But uh, I think it, it was a radical change. Yeah. Beginning of the 80s. I think it's uh, he starting to read uh, more uh, generally literature about uh, the Germans philosophy, mm-hmm. but I think he, he had some ideas about the Rousseau. I think he had some idea about Schopenhauer, and the, the Germans uh, mostly, and Nietzsche. I think he had a, a certain at a certain level some. Um, or some idea what was in in that stuff, but he started to be more professionally engaged. So I think he also mentioned in some connections that it was very important for an educated artist to to have philosophy as a uh, solid background. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So mm-hmm. he started more and more to speak about problems, conflicts, uh, sources. For a modern so-called uh, discussion, discussion, uh, and I think uh, he found it uh, not only interesting but also very funny in many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, this is obviously before my time, uh, but as far as I've gathered, in the eighties he is also uh, becoming uh, uh, specifically, explicitly interested in in aesthetic philosophy too. You mentioned Hegel. Mm. I mean, he did. He did uh, uh, hold a, hold a lecture yes. at the university about, yes. about that. Right? Typical for that period. Yeah. Alt was very up. He was very upcoming in many ways uh, in the broadcasting, uh, television, and even some talk shows. He was invited very much. Uh, he was said some abrupt things about seriously things. People starting to laugh. And think and laugh again, and then he took some risks more and more. So I think uh, the leading teams or uh, people at the University of Oslo found it very interesting and also an occasion for having fun with an artist coming to the temple to speak about philosophy. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, that was in 1982. 
So yes. I, I, I he spoke about timeless, uh, timeless uh, art. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And uh, of course, it was very apocryphal stuff to, to, to bring to the university that was so clearly educated in one school. That means we have a very early start and then uh, in the history and ended up today. It was a linary uh, show then knew very much about. But Old was so apocryphal that he wanted to speak about circles. He wanted to speak about uh, uh, things that repeated themselves the Renaissance, uh, the Classicals, uh, and also the philosopher that uh, claimed the same arguments that he, he brought in. And it was starting to be some screaming and yelling and some... Yeah, it was a fraction, of course, stood up and said that Odd was not capable to speak about philosophy because he had no education in the same subject. <laughs> Uh, but that was all very much used to that, isn't uh -huh. it? So in the end, I remember one argument, uh, an, um, kind of analogy, that a professor said that, uh, listen to this odd, this is my statement. He said, yes, I listen. You can't put a human living being into the, the so-called die Weltmaschine. That the means world that yeah, yeah, that's eating machine, that eating time, typical. You can't put a human living a living human into that machine backwards and go back and wait for a piece of soap. I think Odd was not that curious about Immanuel Kant, but he he stayed with yeah, with, with the more uh, classical ones, I think. I think he, Aristotle was uh, a man for his life. I think he found uh, a kind of covering for his really? uh, for his uh, over uh, what do you say um, the totality of being human and being. I think he he, he found uh, Aristotle uh, fit him very well in many occasions. Because it was so interesting uh, that that you mentioned it, I wasn't aware of that, mm. that he he uh, was concerned with Aristotle at the time, but I <clears throat> I do know this specific lecture that you're you're referring to. He did criticize Hegel, and Hegel, of course, is talking about the need to be bounded to your time. There's no other option. And what uh, was so wonderful when when we had uh, Karl Koshnes here talking about yes. Aristotle is that, of course, Aristotle is the <laughs> more or less complete opposite yeah. of that. So, so, and of course, when he, what year is this lecture then? Uh, I spoke about recently. Yeah. 82. 82. Yes. It's in the very beginning. Yes. So, so we're talking about perhaps always this, this uh, uh, difference between if someone, uh, something inspires you to something mm. or if it confirms mm. yeah, what you right. sort of already are looking for. Is mm. it what you, yeah, yeah right? it confirms. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're right. Because, I mean, in the, in the origin of inequality, Rousseau does talk about, well, the nature state. And of course, there's, uh, uh, you wouldn't see it as a clear recipe to create archetypical images. No. But there are certain things there that you, I think you mentioned, one, one, mentioned uh, how Nurgen would see, oh, here's something, I can use mm. this, uh, yes. I can use this. Yes. And if it's what Rousseau actually meant, mm. that's not the important uh, no, issue. No, 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 exactly. Right. That's, uh, that's uh, a hungry man finding pieces <laughs> here and there, and in the end, he has this beautiful meal. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
So, um, when Nerdman is increasingly concerned with philosophy and uh, aesthetic uh, philosophy as well, you mention in uh, in the book uh, the Nerdum School. Yes. One book which was very decisive when it came to sort of making the pieces fall into place. Mm -hmm. Tell us that story. Yes. Uh, very typical again. You have something that's no value in your pocket, in your plastic bag, or hidden in your... Yeah, everywhere. Or see it with one eye and said, what's this? So after uh, having been to dinner at my birthday, I was given um, a book. Uh, a small, tiny book about an author I never heard about, Hermann Brock. Uh, Open it, and was, the name was Kitsch and Art, and or Art and Kitsch. And uh, I clearly understood that it was a hint, <laughs> very much hint, that uh, that was something for me. So, from just from the front page, I should understand this: you are dealing with Kitsch. And you don't understand what's art. So that's a beautiful dessert to have after a meal. Uh, I didn't open it. Yeah, I came to Odd Studio the day after in the evening. And I said that this was given to me by a common friend of ours. And uh, yes, let me see it. Hermann Brock. Yes, that sounds awful. <laughs> the name sounds awful. Then it's very interesting. So I think he took one or two fragments of it and said, yes, I knew it. It's, it was very, very interesting. The day after, another door was open and he started to speak about kitsch. Yeah. And it went on, or still going on. Um, typical again, something you will just throw away as waste or having value of none. Uh, he creates huge story, important things mm -hmm. for his own, for his art, and for his colleagues. And uh, I guess that this is a fitting moment to point out that the, the criticism that he has been uh, was had been subjected to, mm. to you know, as a was a more or less a blueprint. Mm of what Brock yes. was talking about. Exactly. I mean, they were quoting Brock all the time, with that, but not saying that where they had it from, <laughs> almost. Oh. <laughs> he said, oh, it's written about Porcini. <laughs> oh, look at this. It's about this and that. I, I yeah. love them all. Yeah. And in this connection, they are told to be kitsch. Yeah. And then what's the final cutter? Yes, that means that I also have dealing I am also dealing with kitsch. If they are kitschy, yeah. I'm also kitschy. Yeah. So let's go into this stuff. And he went further. And he went to uh, Hermann Brock's uh, colleagues. Huh. He understood that Hermann Brock was uh, the leader of a kind of argument that took place and had their, uh, had their high, what is it, high time at the 60s, 50s and 60s. Even if Hermann Brock uh, wrote these things, I think it's early 30s. So it bloomed in the 50s and 60s mostly, this stuff. Mm. But Odd said, it's still there. Yeah. 
it's absolutely still there. And we can recognize the arguing from the, uh, from the critic mm. uh, that they have the Brock in their heart. Or in their, uh, yeah. They have, it's a different kind uh, of, yes, kind kind of, of, kind of uh, There is a kind of blood type that everybody <laughs> could call Hermann Brock blood. <laughs> <laughs> yes, something like that. This yeah. is freely yeah, yeah, yeah. from my side. So. <laughs> I understand. Yes. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Yes. So he was adapted stuff and make it, uh, made it clear for us all that let's start speaking about real kids. Yeah. And uh, not the level level of kids. Yeah. So a, a new con- a new co- uh, confusion uh, arised. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he said that the lowest uh, level of kids uh, we knew everything about yeah. because it was low and, we were, and it was everywhere, the lowest level. The highest level is in the museums and we admire it. Yeah. So why don't we just create the highest level of kids? <laughs> is there a, for, yeah, that's the whole solution for us. You just go into that stuff and, uh, and of course avoid the lowest level. Yeah. And we have a certain experience ourselves. What was the lowest level of kids? Mm. And um, that was the typical gypsy girl mm. in the poster. Yeah. Or uh, so the fisherman with his pipe here in Norway. We had some very typical uh, um, examples of that. Mm. Yes. Mm. And it's, it's interesting then because uh, you also see. Uh, the American painter Andrew Wyeth was subjected to the same type of criticism and even called the greatest living kitschmeister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember that the, the front page of Art News mm-hmm. was for his 90th birthday. It said, oh, that's Andrew Wyeth, okay. sentimental or sophisticated? Question oh, mark. Okay. So you get in the quite, I mean, yes. art or kitsch. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Kitsch or art. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think it's yeah. uh, typical for art to, to dare. To, to, to mm. stand on mm. that spot and say, I need to repeat it because you won't listen. Mm. And he, he's insisting and insisting and insisting. And we will see if you will go further on with that stuff. I have presented it to many of my colleagues. Of course, there is an alarm going on when you speak about kids because they are not capable to reach the highest level. Mm. So they will always recognize themselves as the lower level. Mm. That's why they are so frenetic or so, so, so afraid and also anxious to adopt this uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, what to say, uh, theory about kids. And uh, I understand them in a certain way. But that's so interesting. Yes. Uh, and it's so strange too. Uh, I remember reading a, a critis, critic <coughs> writing about <coughs> uh, some former students of, of art, uh, more or less contemporary w- with you. Mm. And the treatment that they get are, you know, as it is now, is, you know, as something of very low level. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So in terms of social stature, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be a great loss no. to go over. No, it could be or should be or it should be a kind of 
uh, was solution for some people, yes. It could be also um, the way to dominate your own life. I mean, you can change your values, you can uh, declaim them, you can uh, say that uh, I'm dealing with this and I won't go to this argument because that's not my, 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 let's say my, my, my world at all. Mm. I stop here, this is my domain, this is my stuff. Mm. And I create my own borders. When you engage with these things, you become more conscious about what you do, why you do it. Yes. I think that is an immense assistance and help. Yes. Uh, because that's one thing I wanted to, to uh, uh, talk with you about. Mm. This whole, the social pressure. Yes. When it comes to being connected with Odd, and always I, I guess yes. if you're connected with, were connected with Andrew Wyeth, and mm. people who rise to a certain level, it becomes a social pressure because yes. they stand for values that are not socially acceptable. Yes, yes, yes. And I think you, as well as I, have seen not uh, one or two, but perhaps more examples of people going to Odd to mm. stick to to Odd Nerdrum, mm. and then they find they think that <clears throat> this is the place. And then they think with their social antennas yes, and absolutely. they understand that they were wrong, mm. uh, uh, opportunistically speaking. Yes. And then they change. Yeah, to what? Yeah, they become themselves as they say. Yeah, Which yeah, they means say, that they're like everybody else. Yes, never been themselves, but know they're going to be themselves. Mm. What a kind of dream it is. Yes, I understand that. I also understand uh, people living under stress. Uh, I understand people living desperately for living. I also understand that people mostly are living under social pressure, yes. And okay, if your talents are good and you give it up, then the loss is there. Yeah. If you have no talents or just are in the field of art for a short period and then you become something else, it's not a great loss. You, you will become something else. You can dealing with films or movies, theater, whatever it is. But if you have a talent and you are more or less under that pressure, you said, leaving your talent, then there is a loss for more than yourself. It's mm. a loss of the talent. Mm. So as I, I mentioned uh, in the introduction, you had a somewhat bizarre experience of applying to the art academy in Oslo. Yes. Being denied uh, a place there and then afterwards coming back as a teacher. Yes. Um, but <laughs> first and foremost, tell us about that uh, situation uh, where you applied to, to the academy. Oh, it's an anecdote that belongs to my personal life. I share it <laughs> as often as I can. No, it's, um, <laughs> it's a very psychedelic. I mean, it's what's up and what's down in this life, sooner or later you will find out. But we were youngsters. We were told that if you come into, a, if you join the academy, you will be, have a free time. Not a free time for, for learning or teaching or something. You have a nice free time for at least three, four years. Mm -hmm. It was a privilege to come, there, to come to the academy. But we, are, we were born in the academy at that time. It, they have no idea what we were asking for. I mean, we were asking for something special. We won't have mm. professional models. 
Mm. We wanted to have space enough to have an easel. We wanted to paint with oil. We, have, we wanted to use turpentine. <laughs> All those things was said that they couldn't bring up. They couldn't show up with that. But we insisted on that. We, we said that we are equal to the other ones. They wanted to use, yeah, they wanted to use uh, the technology, modern things. They wanted to use um, fragments of uh, whatever it was. But we just wanted to do this, study exactly this. So we were born. It will be a conflict. And it was. So the tradition for coming or joining the academy at that time was really a tradition because it was said that you sh should show up for one week and draw at least a fully scale model. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of left over from the yes. tradition of that actually That was the really test of your skills. <laughs> and the model showed up, took a pose and said, okay, we start. And the girls, most of the girls, crying out, they were not prepared for that. They had never been in touch with drawing a model. Mm. So I went around and helped them. <laughs> after the, after, after the test, I, uh, yes, yeah, I think they were very happy about that kind of experience we already had from old studio to draw from model. Right. So, yeah. Yes, I think that was they were very uh, happy about that. Uh, so in the end, after this week, did a test, we were um, called for an interview. And they wanted to know more about us personally in this interview. And uh, it's the first one was, uh, what do you like? Where have you been? Who are your friends? Uh, what do you want with Academy? And so on. And uh, before I was finished with, uh, with the answers, one of them said, uh, uh, I recognize you. You have been the, a student of Otnaidrum. I have seen you before, I've seen you in the newspaper. Catched. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yes, we have an exhibition at Galerie Wang. And he called Nedrum School. Oh, I can't. He's the. Yeah. She used a lot of nasty words about Odden personally and said that um, there's no hope. There's no hope for you. We can't give you anything here. She told you directly. Yeah, no, she said it indirectly because she oh. said, I will well, she said, I will never support that kind of figurative art. And that was, then the case was closed because uh, uh, every member in this group, testing group, had an option. So even if there was five to said, yes, let him in, one could say, I deny him to come in. They had a veto. Yeah. And that was it. So one person that couldn't dare odd for one reason or two or three said that, drop this man. He's just right. a pupil or student, whatever. From all the problems we know about, we have to block them out. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of that test. So later on, it was given, yes, you know, back in 1997, five years later on, it was uh, 
already mentioned, uh, a tradition in sculpture went out with this very skilly and very strong man called uh, Per Palestorm. Sculptor, yeah. Yeah, sculpturing. And he's, he's, uh, so the headmaster went to the department and asked for help to continuing that kind of education in Norway. And at the same time, uh, the statesman said that, yes, we will also bring one strong force for painting into the academy. So that came to the so, academy? Yeah, so that the, he the opened up. without the academy wanting He wanted it. to open up and uh, give the budget they had more money into it and said that uh, makes it free. And then the conflict started at once because everybody knew from the very start that one of the candidates, no, it was really just one candidate for painting and that was old. Mm. And they knew it instantly that he will come into uh, their private, more or less, their community they have in the academy. And uh, the conflict was the first was a, it was on directly on the news every hour in the television. Right. Yeah, it was on that level. I remember. It increased. And uh, Odd said, uh, I drop it. I leave it. We stop here. It's just a conflict. One more conflict. We just stop it there. And uh, everybody relaxed. Everybody went to sleep again. <laughs> Uh, and uh, a friend of Odd uh, was given the same possibility that Odd was told to take and so on. He said that uh, I want somebody to support me. And he asked me right. to support him for a short while. It was 1997. Uh, and, uh, we couldn't even join uh, the academy surroundings. We had to find another space outside the academy. And I think uh, that's... You were set in another building? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Outside, yes. I think it went on for 10 years, 8 years, perhaps 8 years. And I think it was about 5 to perhaps as many as 20 students that went through this education with figurative painting and then it stopped again dead just shut down yeah shut down it was shut down <laughs> conflict is very good in a sense hmm. twisting things back forward up and down but uh, to living in a twist the whole life through it, it's it's very hard <laughs> So, to twist something, uh, it could be fruitful for your own life. It could be... Oh, I would be very surprised if I didn't got any kind of criticism. Mm. Oh, I, that's one of his achievements in his life, going through all that criticism. Yes, if they're giving him medals, and uh, champagne or 
whatever it is, he wouldn't, wouldn't be ordinary dream at all. I think there's this story about Donatello uh, coming to some city where he was celebrated to the point where he just had to flee. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Every way of thinking has its borders, has, it, has its limits, created by yourself or put on your life from somebody else. But as odd, transform it anarchistically, as an anarchist, true anarchist, he has no that kind of limits, no kind of borders. He just wanted to do it. He likes to do it. And it's also very important that he wants to do it. So that's our support for this project. We wanted to create a picture we can't paint ourselves. Happy for that. Per Lundgren, thank you for coming to the Cave of Pelis. Thank you for having him.